Prior to the extinction, most of them photosynthesize. Some of them are able to also capture prey or debris and, and consume it as an alternate form of getting energy. But during that impact winter, they weren't getting enough sunlight. Most of those coccoliths that we know about go extinct. All the photosynthetic ones, the only ones that are really left, are the ones that are able to both photosynthesize and find nutrition from other sources, from all this ocean debris. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire. By now, you probably know how the dinosaurs bit it. Everything was going along all normal, T-Rex was king, and then a flash of light lit up the sky. The light was an asteroid and everything went kablooey. But what does that mean, everything went kablooey? What did that time period actually look like? And how did it pave the way for the world as it is today? One where we can't ride a Dimetrodon to school. To give us the post-dinosaurian details, we've got friend of the show, Riley Black. She's the critically acclaimed author of Skeleton Keys, My Beloved Brontosaurus, Written in Stone, and When Dinosaurs Ruled. She's a columnist for Scientific American and has shared her paleontological expertise with Science Friday, Huffington Post Live, and All Things Considered. Riley, it's so lovely to have you back. Oh, it's wonderful to be back. I love how we do this every couple of years. (laughs) There's another book or something that comes out and just like more science to talk about. Just keep putting out the books. Um, I wanted to start by talking about mass extinctions in general, um, because the Earth has had about five of them. Uh, They have changed life completely. But you actually note in the book that the end Mesozoic extinction, which is called the KPG, is special. And I was wondering if you could first talk about what the KPG extinction is and why it's called that, because it doesn't make sense. (laughs) Yeah, certainly. So... When I was a kid, we called this the KT extinction. And that was because we viewed everything that's sort of post-dinosaur history of the world as the time period called the tertiary. So there was like the secondary period or the age of reptiles and the tertiary was kind of the age of mammals. And then everything got rearranged again because geologists just wanted to. So the earliest time period in that tertiary block after the asteroid impact, that's called the Paleogene. So I got shortened to PG. And then Cretaceous obviously starts with a C, but they changed it to K because there's another time period called the Carboniferous already had that designation. So that's why it's the KPG boundary or the KPG event. And what makes it really striking is that it happened so incredibly quickly. It was the world's fifth mass extinction so far as we're presently counting. In the past, all those earlier extinctions that happened you know, hundreds of millions of years before, there are these like slow kind of grinding mass extinctions. They were the result of things like intense volcanic activity. So you'd have incredible amounts of greenhouse gases spewed into the atmosphere, which spurred global climate change and acidified the oceans and causes changes to the amount of atmospheric oxygen, all these other changes that took hundreds of thousands, sometimes maybe a million years to fully play out. And then you have the KPG mass extinction, which is caused by basically an extraterrestrial cause, an asteroid, with the bulk of it happening within about 24 hours. And then even the extended effects were in a matter of years. So it is lightning fast compared to all the other mass extinctions that came before it. And of course, most people probably know that the asteroid that struck the Earth is is in what is now Mexico um, is probably what caused the KPG extinction, but it's actually not the only idea. And I was wondering if you could talk about other potential contributors. In your book, you kind of say, let's just talk asteroids, but there are 
potential contributors that are more or less accepted in the literature. Right. Well, this is what happens when we talk about extinctions at really any level. There's the proximal cause. So there might be like the reason that the last sort of Sumatran rhinoceros goes extinct. But is that the reason that the species as a whole became extinct? And if we take the same idea back into deep time, there's sort of proximal causes for any given individual or any given species. And then there's the bigger picture. So the big picture cause of this mass extinction is the asteroid impact. But then there are all these events that happen as a result of it, which I imagine we're going to get into in in just a minute or two, that affected organisms and species differently. But then again, there are some other causes. For example, there's the Western Interior Seaway, so the shallow sea that basically spilled over ancient North America and split the continent in half. So you had Appalachia to to the east and Laramidia to the west. That was draining off the continent as sea levels changed at the end of the Cretaceous. So if you're basically a clam living in ancient Montana and you're happy in your shallow marine environment and the sea is gone, of course, you're going to go extinct or go locally extinct anyway, because your habitat is entirely gone. So that is a process of extinction that's going on during that time, but it's not really an explainer for this big picture about why we have a 75% loss at the species level between the end of the Cretaceous and the early part of the Paleocene. And there are some other events that are going on around this time, like incredible volcanic activity in an area called the Deccan Traps in what's now India. And that might have had something to do with some extinctions, but also might have had some very beneficial effects. Uh, And again, I'm sure we'll get into that in a second. But really, when people think about this mass extinction, we've had plenty of ideas, you know, over the years, you know, over a century of thinking about this, particularly about dinosaurs. Like, even though this mass extinction affected so many different groups of creatures, so many groups of organisms on Earth, you have the loss, entire loss of entire groups of living things. And even the survivors, even animals that we think about making it through, like lizards and snakes and mammals and frogs and things, they take massive hits as well. So what explains this big picture? When we focus just on the dinosaurs, people came up with all kinds of ideas, like maybe it was they're getting cataracts because they the sun was too intense, or caterpillars ate all the vegetative material, and the herbivores died, and then the carnivores died. And like if we focus too tightly on T-Rex and Triceratops, we kind of miss all that stuff. And it's really the asteroid impact that is the biggest factor for all of this. So there might be a species or two or, you know, some smaller stories that were affected by some of these other sort of worldwide events that were going on at the end of the Cretaceous. But when we talk about this particular event, what caused life to like suddenly have this incredible shock to it and turnover, it's that impact that really explains it. I just deeply love the caterpillar theory. I do too. <laughs> so good. It is. It's like, I love the fact that we have, like, even by the time that that was proposed, it was during a time that paleontologists sometimes call the dilettante phase in mass extinction research, where it's kind of like anybody of any scientific discipline who had some kind of specialty ideas, like, well, you know, I study caterpillars, and I think that's the answer. I'm an ophthalmologist, and I think that's the answer. And everybody's kind of throwing their own ideas into the mix to explain the dinosaur aspect, forgetting that, like, 
okay, well, even if caterpillars went through this explosion and ate everything, that does not explain why like ammonites in the ocean go extinct or like these little things called forams go extinct at the same time. It's, you know, this real, it was really this interesting, if somewhat headache inducing period in the history of paleontology before we knew about the asteroid impact, where it's just like anybody with a specialty would just throw out an idea and see if it sticks. Well, I just love the idea of like the very hungry caterpillar becoming yes. just like a massive monster and causing mass extinction. It's just it's so good. Too good to check. Yeah. Too good to check. <laughs> yeah. Mothra took out the dinosaurs. That's basically it just got too big. Um, but back to the asteroid, you note in the book that this particular asteroid and where it hit are especially key. And it's true, there are loads of other asteroids that have hit the Earth, and in fact, that continue to hit the Earth, and even some of them leave massive craters, and yet they did not hit the Earth reset button. And I was wondering, what is it about this particular asteroid and where and how it hit that made uh, such an impact, as it were? Yeah, this is something that I've thought about quite a bit in writing the book because we often treat this as almost inevitable. Like a big chunk of rock hits the planet, of course, it's going to cause some sort of devastation. And it's kind of taken as a given. But the fact of the matter is that if that asteroid had been moving a little bit slower, or the Earth had been in a different part of its daily rotation, or you know, the asteroid hit the ocean instead of the continental crust, or just something had been slightly different, the mass extinction might have been either canceled or wouldn't have played out in the same way. This really was like the worst case scenario every single step, which is kind of amazing when you figure that the asteroid itself had been in motion, had been approaching the Earth for millions of years before the event. And it wasn't just kind of like hanging out near the Earth and then decided to stop by. It was basically at the edge of our solar system and got slingshot towards earth it's like the one in a million skill shot if you ever played pinball that you like you don't think you can quite get because it seems impossible and yet it happened and what made this especially bad was that the asteroid came in at more or less a 45 degree angle as far as geologists have been able to sort of reconstruct like looking at the crater and how it formed and the debris and the sort of devastation that you see in the rock record it seems to come in on this relatively low angle and it hits these rocks that are full of the remains of ancient coral reefs that have a lot of biologic material already in them. They're basically fossils in the rocks that it hits, this limestone deposit, and it's full of sulfur-based compounds. So aside from the fact that you have very immediate consequences, all this rock, like millions of cubic miles of rock that's suddenly pulverized and shot up into the atmosphere and it starts to spread around the planet. And as it comes down, causes this friction that creates an infrared pulse that gets so hot that the air temperature can get up to 500 degrees Fahrenheit. It's like it's hot enough that forests spontaneously burst into flames in some places. And that happens within hours. But after that, that's when the impact winter, that sort of visual that we're all familiar with of sort of like these emaciated dinosaurs wandering around to like these dusty landscapes, which probably didn't happen. They were probably gone by that point. But for all the surviving features, these years of blotted out sunlight, of reduced photosynthesis, of these ecosystems hanging on by a thread, it was primarily caused by the fact that all these sulfur-based compounds are really good at reflecting sunlight. So as that rock was pulverized and spread out in this dust cloud around the planet. It was really reflecting back a lot of what Earth 
needed to recover. It's kind of surprising that anything at all was able to survive through this. So it wasn't just the size of the rock or the speed of it, but it's specifically that the target rock had like the worst combination of chemical compounds to be shot up into the atmosphere because those were fossiliferous deposits themselves, the remains of an ancient ocean. And it just adds this like weird sense of irony to the whole thing that in a sense that fossils helped create this terrible event in the fossil record. Oh, that's amazing. I hadn't thought of it that way. (laughs) Um, So you did note, and this just kind of blows my mind, that in places like Hell Creek Formation in Montana, this asteroid hits in what is now Mexico. And it got so hot in Hell Creek, Montana, that forests could spontaneously ignite. And I was wondering, you know, that's relatively close. I mean, it's on the same continent, sort of. Mm -hmm. Um, what happened? Did that happen all over the world? Was the world just like this ball of flame for a while? (laughs) So far as we know, the first 24 hours after impact, the world was incredibly hot. It was basically like the earth was set to broil for hours after this impact because of this infrared pulse. And part of the reason that we know that is when we look at fossil sites around the world, you're able to find the KPG boundary on a number of different places, a number of different continents. Just to give you an idea, like from Montana all the way out to New Zealand to various locales, we're able to find this boundary. And you find the same sort of hallmarks of the impact in it. So like little glass spherules, basically like glass that was created by the force of impact and scattered all over the planet and soot and carbon and shocked quartz, basically these quartz crystals that are cracked at a very small level because of the force of impact. So we know that this debris went out all over the planet and that this infrared pulse that happened, I don't know if anyone's researched how evenly it affected the planet, if it might've been slightly a little less intense in some places, but so far as the current models suggest that this was the entire planet, this was a global event, a global heat pulse. Some estimates suggest that basically all the organic matter on the planet, so basically all the forests, all the plants, whatever animals, or you know, by that time, possibly their carcasses that were out on the landscape, would likely have been consumed by this, this heat and the fires that resulted from it. And that really tells us something powerful about their survivors versus the species that went extinct, because this is one of the reasons why I centered the story on Hell Creek, is that you have this great record of the end of the Cretaceous, and then you have this great record of the earliest days of the Paleogene. So you're really able to compare who made it through, who went extinct, where in other places you might just have the early part of the Paleogene, you might just have the end of the Cretaceous, you can't really see the change between them. In Hell Creek, that you get this, and most of the survivors are animals that could hide underground or burrow, or animals that were in um, aquatic environments, so able to get underwater, or you know plants that develop seeds that form part of the seed bank in the soil. And that's the neat thing about this. It's absolutely devastating on the surface level. The air temperatures are incredible. If you're a T-Rex or a Triceratops, there is nowhere to go. There's no possible refuge for you. Nothing has evolved to withstand this kind of heat except maybe like extremophile bacteria. So they're just gone. 
So it's really by luck that anything that's able to get below ground or below a surface, and we know this from modern forest fires and some studies of how heat affects ecosystems today, it doesn't take that much. It's about, I think, 10 centimeters of soil for even the hottest forest fires to no longer affect the ground beneath it. So if you're a little mammal or a little reptile or, you know, you're a frog or a turtle in, in a pond, you don't even have to be that far below the surface to basically be shielded from all this. But you need to be able to do that. If you're out on the surface, there really is nowhere to go. So I actually wanted to pursue that a little bit um, to kind of talk about the characteristics that would have allowed animals to survive. Um, and one of the things I found amazing um, is that in some ways, at the very beginning, some dinosaurs might have had an advantage when the air is hot enough to cook you because of the way they breathe. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role of lung physiology um, in survival. Yeah, I mentioned this a little bit just to really talk about dinosaur physiology and like if it had just been like a little bit hot, they probably would have been okay because dinosaurs, or at least you know, our non-avian dinosaur friends that are long gone, they many of them had respiratory systems that were much more like birds than ours. Like when we think about breathing, it's like what's called tidal breathing. It's very much in and out. You take a deep breath and you exhale. Dinosaurs like T-Rex, and it's suggested that you know, many of their more distant relatives like Triceratops could also do this, were capable of something called unidirectional breathing. So many dinosaurs, not all of them, but many of them had these air sacs that sort of extended off the respiratory system. So off of their windpipe and off of their lungs and invaded their bones that helped keep their skeletons relatively light and also made them incredibly efficient at breathing. And instead of taking a big deep breath in and a deep, big deep breath out, like you might see in the Jurassic Park movies, it's almost more similar to the way a bird breathes, where it's like you wouldn't see that great expansion and contraction of the rib cage. It's this form where oxygen is always coming in and the incoming air and the incoming oxygen is pushing out the air that's basically now more rich in carbon dioxide. And this also kind of has the effect of a swamp cooler. It allows them to dump their body heat more efficiently than a mammal necessarily can, which would have been important because a lot of these dinosaurs were huge. They were the size of an African elephant or, or larger. A, a full-grown Tyrannosaurus rex was about 40 feet long and about nine tons. That's a huge animal. Just moving around generates a whole bunch of body heat. So you have to be able to get rid of it. And that was probably part of what allowed so many dinosaurs to get so large. So if the heat had gone up by you know, 10, 20, 30 degrees, Many dinosaurs probably would have been able to make it through, but this heat pulse was just so extreme that there's no pre-adaptation that's really going to help you unless you can get away from that heat somehow. Um, but there are also, of course, behavioral adaptations. And we talked about how, you know, tiny mammals living underground, burrowing, lizards burrowing, but also you mentioned fresh water. Um, and I was wondering, you know, that this was so hot. Did some of that water boil away or steam away <laughs> you know how much how much fresh water do you need to protect yourself from you know a massive fiery inferno so based upon what we know from modern ecosystems and when there's like a forest fire and there's like a lake or a pond in that area it doesn't seem like it needs to be that much water to really shield these organisms. Like similar to how the soil, you only takes about 10 centimeters of soil. It's very similar for water, where it's just the way that heat sort of starts to disperse 
over a body of water, you know, it takes a lot to heat that up. So like maybe there was some sort of loss or some of it sort of evaporated away. Uh, I don't know if anyone studied that in particular, but it would take so much to like, if you think about like, if you're making instant ramen at home, like how long sometimes it feels like it takes to like get that thing to boil and for that oh, several hours, away. at least several hours. It is known. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that it's a similar effect where even though this was incredibly intense, it happened all over the world. Like the freshwater environments were just enough. And it seems that the animals that lived in freshwater in particular were already sort of shielded somehow from this, or they're more resilient over evolutionary time. There was a study that was done by uh, Pat Holroyd from University of California, Berkeley and colleagues looking at, okay, like how long are species in terrestrial and aquatic environments like around just as a general rule, like looking at way before the extinction and way after the extinction, what's kind of the turnover for these species. And in the terrestrial realm, species only seem to be around for about one or 2 million years at maximum before they have either an evolutionary descendant, like a new species that evolves from their population, or they disappear entirely. In freshwater environments, it seems that most of these fish and amphibians and reptiles, they're around for about 10 million years or so before the same thing, before they either have a descendant species or they go entirely extinct. So there's something about life in the water that allows these creatures to be a little bit more resilient and get through a lot of environmental disturbances that might otherwise affect sort of terrestrially based animals. That there's something about living on land that is a little bit more of a gamble somehow. And also, I feel it is important to note that some turtles can breathe through their butts. Yes, I really enjoyed including that part in the book. I was like, okay, I want to feature this turtle that's kind of like a Cretaceous version of a snapping turtle, this turtle that we think ate a lot of fish and probably ate a lot of smaller reptiles and amphibians. But how would it make it through? Because turtles obviously have to breathe air. They, they don't have gills. Well, we've recently found out that turtles do breathe through their buds. They have these special cloacal bursae, basically these blood vessels in the orifice. That's like the single use orifice at the bottom of their tail. And they're able to really efficiently extract oxygen from that. So during that time period where you have all this intense heat, where it probably would have hurt to stick your little snout above the surface and get some more oxygen, that they could stay below for a bit longer, maybe an hour or two longer than the other. Uh, than other organisms around them because of the special way of extracting oxygen. It's what allows some turtles to kind of go into a form of like hibernation sometimes and kind of just rest in those bottom waters of a pond and just kind of chill out until conditions become more favorable. And I also wanted to ask about birds because, you know, usually you think of, well, birds can fly. So, you know, the fire starts and they can just fly. They can go somewhere else. But if there's nowhere to go... The birds did make it. So how did that happen? <laughs> right. That's an awesome question because we also have another group of flying creatures at that time called pterosaurs, and they go entirely extinct. So it's not just a matter of flight because if flight were the deciding factor, then we still have pterosaurs around. We'd have these like bat-winged reptiles still with us. So how did that work? What happened? And there was a study that looked at basically teeth, teeth, teeth versus beaks at the end of the Cretaceous and the beginning of the Paleocene. And the critical factor seemed not to be ability to fly because it's doubtful that any flying organism would be able to get high enough to get away from this heat pulse. There just wasn't a way to, to do that. Instead, 
it seems that birds were able to go underground, basically go into burrows. And we see this all the time in modern ecosystems where a large animal, maybe a dinosaur, maybe a turtle, whatever it is, they'll create a burrow. Sometimes they'll abandon it and other creatures will come live in it. So it's likely that the surviving birds were able to do just that, that they're able to either, either burrows of their own or they're able to kind of borrow them to get through this heat pulse. What made the difference seems to be diet. Because before the asteroid impact, you not only have birds with beaks, but you also have birds with teeth. And you have a lot of very bird-like raptor dinosaurs, like a little mini velociraptor thing covered in feathers. So I have these three distinct groups, and they're all kind of similar to each other, but only one makes it through. And it seems to be beaks that made the difference. And the idea is that Birds with beaks were already adapted to feed on seeds and nuts and things that would have been able to make it through this heat pulse that were stored in the soil already. They're able to dig them up and eat them. But if you have teeth, you're more of a carnivore. You eat other critters. And if those critters are gone because the forests are gone, so there are no insects to eat, there are no little lizards to eat, then it's going to be that much harder to find food. So even if you made it through, even if like a little velociraptor type thing made it through an underground burrow, it's emerging into this world where there is no food for it. Whereas birds with beaks that are able to make it through basically just on plant leftovers, basically on these seeds and nuts and things that are stored in the ground, they're able to eke by and they're able to make it. And that seems to be what made the difference. So like you said, flight wouldn't have really made much of a difference at all. It's just the fact that some birds had already switched over to grinding up these underground, basically storage aspects of plants. That's what really saved them in the end. I uh, Please tell me that the tiny velociraptor that was covered in, in feathers and had teeth has the Latin name that translates to danger chicken. I wish I think the one that I feature in the book is a carol raptor, but we, we definitely need a danger chicken. I we think need there's a danger chicken. We do. There is a dinosaur called Anzu that I think when it came out was heralded as like the chicken from hell. And oh, it was found yes, in the Dakotas. The I remember this. Yes. yes. <laughs> So, but it really that that was that's about the only one so far. But we need that formalized. We need that Latinized version. Now, of course, anyone who has seen, say, Fantasia, um, and who hasn't, ends up with kind of this picture of the KPG extinction involving dinosaurs, like seeing this asteroid coming, which you note probably wouldn't have happened because the asteroid was coming too fast. Um, but afterward, they starve on this landscape that's just loaded with dino carcasses, and you'd think that there would just be this massive boneyard, like just a layer of fossils, a mass grave from where this impact happened as everything immediately died. And there's not. And I admit I had never questioned in my mind why this was until I read your book. Why isn't there kind of a mass dinosaur grave around the extinction? Right, that's exactly what you'd expect to find, right? If there's this much death, you would expect to find some kind of direct evidence of it. Instead, we have the impact layer, but it's what paleontologists call the three meter problem in that for about that space below the boundary, it's incredibly difficult to find dinosaurs or really almost any other fossils. Like when you look at those end Cretaceous layers, it starts to kind of fizzle out before we even get to the impact. And for a time, some paleontologists suggested that, well, maybe dinosaurs went extinct before the impact even happened. We know now that that's not the case for a few reasons, and there's a couple of reasons why this sort of phenomenon appears. One of them is just technical, and that if you think of the entire rock record, 
if you drew a line basically anywhere across it and you're looking at specific groups of organisms, just the fact that the false record is very spotty and we don't have a complete record means that you're going to get false disappearances or animals that just they didn't happen to be preserved coming up to basically any line whatsoever. You can kind of simulate this. Like if you have a handful of little dinosaur figures and you just kind of toss them against the wall, some of them are going to be closer to that wall, which is your boundary, and some are going to be further away. And that's kind of what, what's going on. It's just kind of like a statistical probability of, of preservation. But there's another aspect to this, and that's the acid rain. So we talked about all those sulfur-based compounds that got thrown up into the atmosphere. We know from things that we've done during human history that this contributes to acid rain, that basically this gets bound up and it comes back down to us as acidified water. And we know from part of the fossil record, these little things called ostracods, these little crustaceans that you find in aquatic environments, that they seem to disappear as well. So it's not just the big stuff. It's almost anything that has a sort of calcified shell or bone or skeleton, something that can kind of be eaten away. And it seems that, you know, this isn't like acid rain that was so intense that like it burned things on contact per se, but it was enough to destroy a lot of that fossil record from that time period. So even if bones or aspects of these extinct critters made it through, a lot of that was destroyed in the aftermath. But there seems to be a couple of places where maybe we get like a snapshot of this. One of them is um, a site in the Dakotas uh, nicknamed Tanis that's been in the news quite a bit recently. And so far as we're able to tell, that seems to have been laid down within about hours of the impact. And there are fish from that site that are entirely articulated. So like this it looks like, you know, if you just had that fish immediately be buried and fossilized, every bone is still in place. Their scales are still in place. And they have little glass spherules, that glass that was created by the impact in their gill rakers. So basically, as they're filter feeding through the water, they were picking up debris from the impact. So this must have happened very soon after. And reportedly, there are also dinosaur fossils and other forms of fossils at that site. They haven't been published yet, but it might be one of the rare cases where conditions were just right to preserve this record where everything was sort of killed and buried so quickly that it was kept safe, almost like in a geological ziplock. Whereas everything else that came after that died during that heat pulse was later affected by this acid rain, which kind of scrubbed away a lot of the fossil record. Note to self, get enough acid rain and you can commit the perfect crime. (laughs) Very slowly, very slowly. Over geological time scales. Um, I was actually wondering with all this like sulfurous material put in the air, does it mean that like the KPG extinction smelled like farts? You know, I would love to see a paper on that. Because <laughs> like, whenever I go to Yellowstone, there's a lot of sulfur in those geysers and the geothermal activity. So yeah, it's just, it was a really bad day for Earth. And you know, when you're stressed, you know, it's, I, I, I would like to think so. I'll put it that way. <laughs> I, I just hope that's the title. The KPG extinction smelled like farts. The day Earth farted. <laughs> yes. Published in Science 2025. Um, now, you note that the extreme heat was followed by extreme cold, as you get all this material kind of flung up by the fires. And this means that the asteroid produced this impact winter Um, that lasted for years. And I was wondering, how long did that impact winter last? How cold was it? And kind of why did it end up getting so cold? 
Right. So this goes back to a lot of those sulfur-based compounds where a lot of the initial impact materials were very carbon-rich and the sulfur compounds took a while to take effect. So you have compounds that create global warming and global cooling kind of competing with each other. They're all in the mix together. There wasn't one kind of taking precedence over the other. So you have all these different sort of natural response systems kicking in together and some start to overwhelm the others. So, so far as geologists have been able to estimate, it seems that the global temperature is cooled by maybe about 20 degrees Fahrenheit or so. So like not a deadly cold snap, but certainly like on average, that's quite a bit colder. And a lot of organisms that are not used to this kind of drop would have to make, make it through. It could have been much worse. The thing that actually kind of ironically saved a lot of life on earth were those intense Deccan trap eruptions that were happening in ancient India. And that's because those volcanoes were dumping so much carbon dioxide and methane and greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, both before the impact and the sort of the thousands of years afterwards, that it raised the global temperature a little bit. So you have all the sunlight that's being reflected back out and is making photosynthesis extremely difficult and is lowering the temperature. But also you have these greenhouse gases in play that are raising the air temperature, the atmospheric temperature all over the planet. So in a sense, this thing that we used to think cause was a major contributor to the extinction was kind of the saving grace of a lot of life on Earth. Which is wild to me because usually we think of volcanoes as producing kind of false winters. I mean, I'm thinking of the famous year without a summer in 1816 that followed the eruption of Mount Tambora. Um, and so it's really fascinating to, first of all, think of, of the Deccan Traps as kind of saving us and also thinking of life saved by climate change <laughs> in a way. Yeah, it's strange when you look at it on these geological timescales and you see some of these events unfolding that we're becoming much more familiar with now. I feel like even on average, what people have heard and may understand about climate change is very, very, it's much more complex than like when I was a kid and it's like, okay, well, you know, car emissions are bad. It's like, now we've heard this so many times that we can start to piece this together sort of through time. And the impact winter unfolded over about three years. So that is a very long time if you are a surviving bird or snake or fern or whatever it is, but it's also relatively short. It wasn't so prolonged that organisms couldn't make it through. It was on a matter of a couple of generations for many forms of life on earth. So it was certainly intense. It was certainly not good, but it was something that could these organisms could make it through. Whereas if it had extended years further or for decades, then we might've seen a very different form of extinction play out. There was a great paper. This is not in the terrestrial realm, but I go into it a little bit because I think it's just so neat. And it's kind of scary in a sense, realizing this, that you have these little organisms out in the sea called coccolithophores. So if you imagine like a disc or like, uh, like a sweet tart, basically a little microscopic sweet tart that's really phytoplankton, it's algae that photosynthesizes, and they can form and glom on to each other into these little things called coccolithospheres. So basically these little balls made of all these little disks. Prior to the extinction, most of them photosynthesize. Some of them are able to also capture prey or debris and, and consume it as an alternate form of getting energy. 
But during that impact winter, they weren't getting enough sunlight. Most of those coccoliths that we know about go extinct. All the photosynthetic ones, the only ones that are really left are the ones that are able to both photosynthesize and find nutrition from other sources, from all this ocean debris. So without that, if they hadn't just been able to do that, the oceans might have just entirely fundamentally collapsed the authors of that paper said like without basically this happenstance the oceans might have gone back to a single celled state that hadn't been seen in about half a billion years so it was really by luck that these this basis for the ocean ecosystem this form of plankton was able to make it through and then when photosynthesis started to kick in again when the impact winter was ending they're able to photosynthesize and start doing new things and split off into different populations and species and sort of reform the foundation of the oceans but like that's how close it came it's kind of strange to think about like how the world came just that close to like the largest biome on the planet basically our oceans entirely collapsing and having to restart all over again. Yeah. And, and I especially love that you go into different ecosystems in this book and, and especially the oceans, because, you know, we think about, okay, the land is burning. Okay. Dinosaurs are going to end up as like gigantic rotisserie chicken, but you would think water would be safe. <laughs> um, and so I was actually wondering, because you mentioned it could have been worse, but we did still get ecosystem collapse. Um, so like, why don't we still have, for example, the descendants of plesiosaurs? Um, is that due to the phytoplankton? It's probably because of that phytoplankton collapse that, you know, we don't often appreciate how all these little things, there's just so many of them. The biomass is incredible. And they really form that foundation of our oceans. Like we learn about this, I think usually when we see food webs kind of drawn out, and maybe this is sort of the bias in science that comes from, you know, who's writing these textbooks and what examples are they choosing? The ones that would always stick with me or that I remember most clearly would be like Eastern woodland ecosystems. So you'd have like a white-tailed deer and a great horned owl and a fox and insects and pine trees and things like that. But when you take that same understanding that, you know, each ecosystem, you need a lot more producers, you need a lot more basically plants and things that are able to convert sunlight into food, which then other things eat and other things eat them. And it kind of creates that pyramid. So there's less at each step. So you need a ton of phytoplankton to feed the plankton that feeds on them, to feed the fish, to feed the fish that eat the other fish and so on and so forth. So if you basically, it's like a big thing of Jenga. If you take out, you know, just one of those bottom key blocks, the whole thing above it is going to fall over. And that probably contributed to the death of many of these ocean organisms that we see, the great marine reptiles that were around. They probably didn't die during that heat pulse. It was the degradation of those ecosystems after the fact, and there just was not enough food. Whatever was making it through really had to make it through on scraps. The KPG extinction when life failed Jenga. <laughs> I could see the T-shirt now. Um, so you were talking about phytoplankton um, and the coccolithospheres. Yes. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, and how they suffered massively under the impact winter. And I was actually wondering: Do we know now that photosynthetic algae form a very large amount of the modern world's breathable oxygen? And so when we lost a lot of phytoplankton in this mass extinction, 
do we know if oxygen levels were affected as well and if that could have potentially, I don't know, caused even more terrible stuff? Yeah, that's an awesome question. I don't know if anyone has considered that in the literature. I figure it must have to have like such a massive die off from this incredible source of oxygen that's so critical for, for life on Earth. We know that there are some organisms that make it through the Paleocene that it seems where they live, where they're able to get underground or find refuge in water, they survived and then persisted for you know a million or two years afterwards before you know, leaving more descendant species. So it seems like the drop wasn't great enough to really put an extra squeeze on life on Earth. But then again, if that's the case, then why? How did that play out? Because as you said, this must have had an effect on the oxygen being produced, and especially if most of the plant material on the planet was also consumed. Then what provided like these really basic needs that most life on Earth requires to, to be met? So that's something I'd love to see explored more. Like you create, it must have happened to some capacity, but why and how did that play out? So I'm hoping we eventually get that answer. And this age also saw the end of the ammonites, which is a tragedy because they're the best. Um, They're the little round shelled sea dwelling guys. Um, And I was wondering, why did this extinction come for them as well? The neat thing is we have ammonites, at least a few of them, from what might be 100,000 years after the impact. But they still ultimately went extinct. Like They just took such a massive hit that they could not recover. And that's kind of a puzzle because... We think about ammonites as being very ancient because they're extinct, but there are also the ancestors and relatives of today's pearly nautilus alive at the same time that both ammonites and nautilus like originated around the same time. They proliferated about the same time. So what allowed like one shelled squid type thing to make it while the other one went entirely extinct? It seems to like not make sense. It also feels unfair. Like we get brachiopods and we get crinoids for hundreds of millions of years, but we don't get trilobites and ammonites. Like I just, I I can't with the fossil record sometimes, but in this particular case, it might have something to do with the way that ammonites reproduce. One of the leading hypotheses aside from the effects of possible ocean acidification, which I go into a little bit in the story that it's very hard to build a shell when the ocean is a bit more acidic, is that ammonites produced a vast amount of very small offspring. They're basically these little planktonic offspring. And we also know that ammonites ate plankton. So it's possible that under this stress, they were reproducing, but they're basically eating their own young because that was amongst the only plankton that they could still find in consumers. Nautilus reproduced in a different way. They have a smaller number of slightly larger offspring and they have a different diet. So it might have been just like those circumstances of how ammonites reproduce and what they feed that under pressure, they almost drove themselves to extinction just because there was nothing else to access. And one of the things that really wowed me in this book is that you mentioned that another mass extinction happened during an age of dinosaurs, and we just got another age of dinosaurs. But after the KPG extinction, we didn't. So why didn't we get like a third age of dinosaurs electric boogaloo version? I know I wanted it to be a trilogy. I mean, maybe we'll eventually get there, but... (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, I, I don't want to discount the birds just yet, but I would I'd love to see that happen. So the earlier mass extinction that you referred to happened at the end of the Triassic and the beginning of the Jurassic. So the Mesozoic is split into three chapters. You have the Triassic, which came first, and that's when dinosaurs and many other forms of reptiles originate. Dinosaurs are kind of on the sidelines during that time period from about 235 million years to about 200 million years ago. And then you have a mass extinction. And that one is caused by intense volcanic activity in what's called the North Atlantic Magnetic Province. So basically the Eastern seaboard, like New York, New Jersey, you can find traces of this in other parts of the world as well, because we had Pangea at the time. So all these places were much closer to each other. But some of the outcrops that I really remember are sort of like the Palisades, and uh, New York is kind of created by all this magma outpouring. And that sparked a mass extinction that took out many forms of reptiles, but dinosaurs did okay. So a mass extinction kind of handed the world to dinosaurs and they thrived throughout the Jurassic, the Cretaceous. It was kind of, it's kind of strange how long that they were able to make it without a mass extinction. Previously, mass extinctions seemed to pop up every 50 or 60 million years. And during the Jurassic and Cretaceous, like, Dinosaurs just kept rolling along. It was entirely fine until the end of the Cretaceous. So why didn't we get this kind of bounce back effect happen again? After all, we have some dinosaurs that survive. We have birds. We have big birds. But in order to become something dinosaur-like all over again, like birds had already acquired so many specializations in terms of like how they walk like birds in the earliest paleogene they don't have long tails they don't have teeth anymore they have a center of gravity that's that's very different they don't have claws or arms so in order to become something that's more like a triceratops or more like an apatosaurus or what have you it would require so many extreme modifications to kind of undo or find a new route to those other body forms and during this time period you have all these little mammals that survive these mammals that are generalists that you know fed on you know the carcasses of dinosaurs or on insects or on bird eggs that they're not particularly good at doing any one thing but they're great at doing a lot of different things and they are able to proliferate just that much faster they're able to reproduce and start evolving in new ways and really filling up the landscape in a way that there isn't a niche for a sort of bird that's becoming something more T-Rex-like to survive, which is kind of interesting because this is exactly what dinosaurs did to the ancestors of mammals, you know, way before that, that it was our relatives and ancestors, the proto-mammals prior to 252 million years ago that were the most numerous and prominent on the landscape. A mass extinction took them out. That's what allowed reptiles to come forward. And at the end of the Cretaceous, that flips. It's basically the reverse. And it's really who gets to fill up these environments first. We do see little echoes, little possibilities that maybe there could have been another age of reptiles. There are some paleogene crocodiles, for example, that were very dinosaur-like. Their teeth are very much like those of a carnivorous dinosaur like T-Rex. And they walked on land. They didn't live in the water. They were running around and eating mammals. Some of them even seem to have hooves, which is kind of neat. And you get these really big birds. Like evolution loves just a big bird over and over again. Like I think at least six times we've gotten gigantic, like bigger than an ostrich, terrestrial flightless birds. So these things pop up, but mammals just 
got to these niches first and eventually just were able to stick with it in a way that didn't give reptiles a chance to kick in a third a third act of the age of reptiles. You know what this means. Mammals out there, if you're listening, keep breeding. Keep doing it. We got to do it. We got to keep the birds down. Do you want uh, the dinosaurs like, back? <laughs> this feels like a, very much like a World War II era, like propaganda poster. Like, do your part. <laughs> do your part. Keep the birds down. Um, so I actually did want to ask a little bit more about birds. Um, because one of the things I found amazing is that dinosaurs for a long time existed in a world without bird song. Um, because unlike modern birds and unlike the birds that ended up kind of surviving and replacing them, dinosaurs could not tweet or chirp or whistle. <laughs> um, and I was wondering if you could talk about a little bit about the evolution of birdsong, just because I think it's, it's kind of amazing. <laughs> I mean, how could dinosaurs tweet that long before social media? <laughs> but oh, really, but I mean, don't you just love the idea of a giant stegosaurus just looking at you and being like, tweet! Yeah, exactly. Yes, just like this deep bass note, like infrasound tweet. <laughs> so I would just tone it back, buddy. Just tone it back just a little bit. A chirp rumbles through the forest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that would be one heck of a dawn chorus. My goodness! Wow, deafening! Like an amazing metal concert. <laughs> you just you feel it. You don't even hear it. You just feel it. But yeah, that's a great question. That when we think about birds being dinosaurs, they're not. They don't, the traits that birds have weren't universally shared by non-avian dinosaurs, that they have certain specializations that came with being able to fly or evolving beaks and all these things that we think about when we think about birds now. And one of the organs that is particular to avian dinosaurs is something called the syrinx. So that's basically a specialization of their windpipe that allows them to chirp and tweet and sing and do all these wonderful things that we know them for. And we know non-avian dinosaurs didn't have this. Um, from really well-preserved non-avian dinosaurs that we've got, we've never found evidence of something similar. Non-avian dinosaurs are probably much more similar to alligators and crocodiles in terms of their respiratory setup, in terms of what their windpipe anatomy was like. So they could rumble and they could make these really deep toned sounds. And even when we look at the inner ears of these dinosaurs, we often find that they're very much attuned to low frequency sounds. So it's almost like modern day African elephants are able to like make these rumbles that are so low that they travel over long distances and we're not capable of really hearing them, but there's still communication between these animals. And for most non-avian dinosaurs, that seems to be what they're capable of vocalizing. Not to mention that there are other ways to make noises. There's a great paper about like, well, what sounds did dinosaurs make? And it's like, well, you have the vocal aspect, but you also have like slapping your tail against the surface of a pond or clapping your jaws together or rubbing your scales on a rock or something like that. There are lots of basically non-vocal ways of communicating that even modern reptiles have, and maybe non-avian dinosaurs had something similar. But the fact is that the first birds don't show up in the fossil record until about 150 million years ago. And it's not until the early Cretaceous about 125 million years ago, so basically 25 million years after the origin of birds, that you start to see birds, they're starting to get a little bit more modern looking. So for most of the Mesozoic, there wasn't any bird song. Like even once you had birds, it still took tens of millions of years for birds to evolve the ability to sing. Most of their communication with each other prior to that 
seems to be in the forms of just different feather colors, different feather anatomies. Some of these early birds have like streamer-like feathers coming off the ends of their tails. And visual communication seems to like it was much more important until birds evolved the ability to sing. That actually makes me feel kind of bad for dinosaurs. Bird song's really nice. Like I'm sad they missed it. <laughs> it also might have given a lot of birds away. Like that's the whole like signaling thing, right? It's like, oh, that's a beautiful song. And also thank you for letting me know like what branch to chomp at next. <laughs> um, so I also want to talk about another group of animals that actually did not go extinct. Um, and it's one that I think nobody ever really thinks about. The bugs did fine. There was not a mass extinction of insects and spiders. Do we know why that is? I mean, you know, they still got to eat just like everybody else. <laughs> right. So in a sense, there was kind of a mass extinction of insects and spiders, but they reproduce so quickly and they kind of have this adaptability about them, this ability to make the most of whatever environments and changes are thrown at them that very quickly after the impact and its effects that a lot of insects evolved ways to basically pick up the same ecological roles all over again. So it's new species doing the, the same things. And this is tracked through fossil leaves and fossil plants that during the Cretaceous, you have all this kind of bug damage on fossil leaves that you can see that their insects are kind of like munching along the, the outsides or they're weaving their way through like what are called leaf miners or they're making nests or you know, laying their offspring in leaves and you see all this. And then directly after the extinction, most of those forms of leaf damage disappear, which suggests that many of these insect species disappeared from the plants dead, that they just, their food source was gone, their homes were gone. There wasn't anything for them to do. But as a group, there were beetles and caterpillars and all kinds of other insects that were able to persist in one form or another. So as forests grew back, they're able to basically re-evolve the same roles. It's kind of the same thing that we see, um, just take a slight left turn, but it's the same kind of concept with alligators and crocodiles that we often call these things living fossils. They seem very similar, that they weren't really all that much affected by mass extinctions, that their evolution's great survivors. But recent research on just skull shapes and genetics of crocodilians suggests that they're actually evolving incredibly rapidly, but they're doing the same thing over and over again. So you'll have these, you know, basically swamp puppies. You will have semi-aquatic ambush predators of particular groups or species, and they'll go extinct. And then there's something else, some terrestrial croc that basically fills that niche all over again and re-evolves that same role. So we often think about diversity as like finding as many different ways to be a thing as possible, have as many different ecological jobs as possible. But there's some groups of animals, it's like, no, we're good. We're just going to do like these three things. I'm going to do it over and over and over again. So it's very similar with crocs and the insects that even though there were extinctions, the survivors basically just reinvented what always worked. So it's quick evolution to the same repeating point. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> it works. Um, so you note that, you know, groups of animals um, after the KPG extinction, there was kind of this big evolutionary branching and spinoff um, and that you get kind of these big evolutionary kind of fluff outs, I guess, early in the history of animal lineages. And I was wondering, why does that happen 
early? Why does it not continue to happen? Like, could you get a big evolutionary branching even when a group has been around for a really long while? What kind of stops us from evolutionarily fluffing out, I guess? Right. I love that term fluffing out because we often talk about this with mammals, right? That this was the great fluff out. We get the age of mammals starting. And I think the traditional picture is that, you know, mammals were very much being kept down during the age of dinosaurs. They were the underdogs, haha, of, of the Mesozoic. And then, you know, the non-even dinosaurs disappear and mammals just go bonkers and evolve in all these different ways. The story is actually a lot more complicated than that. Over the past 20 or 30 years in particular, we've learned that Mammals actually did really great during the age of dinosaurs. They were small. And this feels like very much a, a Western and American view of like bigger is better. And it's like, oh, of course, mammals were suppressed because they were tiny. It's like, well, that's part of the picture. Yes, it's part of the effect that if you're bigger, you can get more easily picked off by a dinosaur. And there's a kind of limit to what was possible. But at small size, during the Jurassic and during the Cretaceous, you had mammals that were effectively ancient raccoons and ancient aardvarks and otters and flying squirrels and all these different forms that we see as now just these ancient mammal groups. And some of our recent research suggests that many of these mammal groups that were doing really well were very archaic. They're the most sort of ancient forms of mammals, some of which were still like laying eggs, for example. They're closer to maybe something like a duck-billed platypus than to you or I, whereas our ancestors, our ancestors amongst the placentals are relatively rare. Like at the end of the Cretaceous in Hell Creek, most of the mammals that were around were marsupials. Marsupials were the most numerous mammals on the planet, and it was our placental ancestors that were relatively rare. It took the mass extinction to basically change the balance and give placental mammals their, their shot. And then they started to really fill up and diversify. And part of that was having the evolutionary space to do so, that when you see these great fluff outs, that it's not so much something internal. It's not like there is something in the universe that's going like, there must be a flying squirrel right now. Like it's this interaction that happens through time. And when you have the recovery from the impact of all these forests start to form all these surviving plants as they're putting down their roots. They're not just becoming forests, but incredibly dense forests, forests that have a lot of stratification to it. So life and the conditions at the top of the canopy are very different from sort of at the middle of the trunk, which are very different from at the surface of the ground, which are very different from underground. So you have all these mini ecologies starting to build up and they can do that because there aren't any big animals. During the age of dinosaurs, you'd have things like triceratops that were like creating pathways through the woods and pushing over trees and keeping these kind of open. Like if you think about the African savanna today, part of the reason it looks so open is because you have so many big animals that are making their mark on the landscape and keeping it that way. If you remove the giraffes and the elephants and things like that, it starts to close up. So the fact that everything was so small that survived and you have these environments that are becoming much more complex and dense and providing basically that much more real estate, then that provides plenty of opportunity for mammals to start to divvy up the landscape being like, okay, like I'm a generalist. I like to eat other organisms. I'm a carnivore. I'm getting some competition from that. But if I be, and not to say that any of this is like very intentional, it's just kind of, I'm anthropomorphizing it to make the point. But if they, if they start to be able to climb trees and hunt in parts of the trees or in the canopy where there isn't competition, 
then adaptation can start to really rev up and give us something new and give us like cat-like creatures that are crawling through the trees while there are dog-like creatures on the ground. So it's really this interplay between the survivors and the environments they find themselves in. And sometimes it's these big bursts that happen early near the origin of a group. And the conditions seem to be very favorable and it's kind of wide open. And sometimes it's a long fuse that sometimes there's that potential is there, but there's another group that's suppressing it. We see this with some reptiles, for example, that the ancestors of lizards and snakes were kind of on the margins throughout most of the age of dinosaurs because it was relative to today's tuatara, which is just one species, the last remaining one of its group. But during the age of dinosaurs, they were everywhere these Tuatara-like things. And it took them kind of dying back to allow lizards and snakes to really sort of fluff out and have their own major evolutionary moment. And that's like this long fuse where it's just kind of like burning along until that opportunity comes up. So there's nothing internal to the organisms themselves. It's often when life starts to get to a boundary, like starts to surpass a previous boundary. So if you have terrestrial animals that are starting to become adapted to the ocean, or if you have mammals that are starting to become adapted to dense forests, that there's something ecological that allows the space for this to happen. And that seems to drive a lot of that. Um, so what I actually wanted to talk a little bit more about forests, because one of the things I think many of us get mixed up in our heads around the last dinosaurs is kind of what their environment looked like. So possibly thanks to Jurassic Park, I think about dinosaurs living in a tropical forest kind of ecosystem. And sure, dinosaurs did live in the tropics, yes. But I think we underestimate how different the trees were because it was not a tropics full of flowering trees necessarily. They were stomping through a landscape of mostly conifers. And I was kind of wondering if we could talk about how, why did conifers kind of decline after the KPG extinction and what kind of led to this kind of huge rise and proliferation of flowering plants that we have now? Right. That's one of like evolution's big mysteries. I think even Darwin at some point wrote in one of his journals that like the origin of flowering plants and why they're so prevalent is like just gave him headaches. It basically is one of evolution's greatest mysteries and we're still trying to untangle this so conifers go back quite a ways like you know before the dinosaurs even things like cycads which seem very ancient are a form of conifer that they're closer to a pine tree than they are to a flower and around 125 million years ago so the early cretaceous you get the first flowering plants but these they're these little wispy things they're not sort of like roses or anything like that that took a very long time to develop and even by the end of the Cretaceous, it's mostly conifers. You have some very familiar plants. For example, it still blows my mind that we have like dogwood and magnolia flowers and some very familiar plants. They're still with us as fossils from environments where animals like T-Rex and Triceratops are around. There's a great mural at um, Yale's Peabody Museum of Natural History, which is called Age of Reptiles. And all the way on the left-hand side, like the very, what's supposed to represent the end of the Cretaceous, there are flowering trees that look like they could be in your backyard. But they weren't especially prevalent. And it took that mass extinction to sort of tip the balance. It might've been a matter of just conifers had done really well. Dinosaurs had evolved with them for quite some time and their place sort of in ecosystems was relatively secure. But once life had its restart button pressed when the field was more or less cleared, angiosperms are really great 
at spreading very quickly, that they're great at spreading pollen into the wind. They had already evolved uh, pollinator relationships. So surviving insects, if you could put out a flower, there would be insects already evolved to come and visit it and carry your pollen to another plant. So it was very similar to the mammals in a sense where flowering plants were around, but there just wasn't room for them to really fluff out in that evolutionary sense. And it took that leveling of the playing field to be like, okay, like they can actually reproduce really quickly. And before reproducing quickly doesn't really mean a whole lot when there's not real estate to put your roots down into. But now that there is, they're able to kind of stage this takeover unintentionally, but just basically out reproduce many of the conifers that were dominant before. And, you know, we had all these evolutionary fluff outs um, which is now the technical term. Thank you. Yes. Um, <laughs> I'm glad that we agreed on this. Like I want to see it in a technical paper. Um, but you mentioned in the book that there is no point at which life can be considered recovered from the KPG extinction. Why is that? We're still very much living in the shadow of this mass extinction. There's so many things that we can look around and see and see the hallmark of that event like very directly for example the fact that like looking at my window right now there's a morning dove sitting on the telephone pole right outside my window that is a beaked bird if things were otherwise it might have been a pterosaur sitting there or a bird with teeth or something entirely differently i might not be here for example but even just to break this down to the time scale for a moment it's been about 66 million years since that impact to mass extinction if you take that same chunk of time, that absolute number, 66 million years, and you started at T-Rex and you projected that backwards, you would still be in the age of dinosaurs. That there is basically more time between Stegosaurus and T-Rex than there is between T-Rex and us. So the Mesozoic and everything that happened, like we often compress it in, in our minds into something that was relatively short, or we say it goes on a long time, but we don't really understand how incredibly long and influential this time period was, and that we had the origin of the first true mammals, of flowering plants and pollinators, of so many things around us. And even the aftermath, it's kind of amazing that there's this fossil site in Colorado uh, called Corral Bluffs. And in addition to a lot of mammals that were thriving after the extinction. It's also the earliest known evidence of legumes. They basically have like a very early bean plant that seemed to have evolved like very quickly after that mass extinction. And that was only possible because of what we were just talking about, basically this dieback of the conifers and flowering plants beginning to come forward in new ways and adapt in new ways. So there's so much that we can look at like in our modern world and tie and ask a question like, okay, well, why is this species around not something else? Or why does this animal look this way? Or why do birds seem so different from everything else? That ties back to this mass extinction. It was an incredibly long time ago, but compared to the time frames that we're talking about, about the evolution of life on earth and these sort of the periodicity of these mass extinctions, it wasn't all that long ago. We're still very much kind of living in the shadow of the age of dinosaurs. And that's one of the things that I think came through beautifully uh, in this book is that often we think of the asteroid extinction as this terrible end to the age of dinosaurs. But you note that destruction is often required to create change. Um, for us to become what we are, dinosaurs had to go. And I know you're a paleontologist. Does knowing that make you think 
differently about dinosaurs? It's certainly bittersweet. It's something that when I look at fossils and look at dinosaurs in particular, I, I really, I desperately wish that I could see them alive. I wish that I could know much more about them than I'm ever likely to know. But I know that if they were still here, if the mass extinction had either never happened or played out in a different way, and let's say for the sake of argument that some non-avian dinosaurs survived, I wouldn't be here. And it wasn't just like their presence, but so many of the other changes that came with that event that allowed our existence to be possible. This goes back to an idea that Stephen Jay Gould often wrote about, and he was a major influence on my work throughout my career, this idea of contingency. And in the everyday sense, contingency can be like, I missed a work meeting because I got a burrito from that place. I just did not feel good afterwards. And, you know, if you had done something different or gone somewhere different for lunch, you wouldn't have had your plans sort of scrambled. But this is on a global scale. This is like if that mass extinction had not occurred, the consequences would have played out differently and opened and closed different routes of possibility afterwards. So every time that I look at a non-avian dinosaur, I'm just, you know, I'm so struck by so much of what they were and how they lived and all the questions that we have about them. But I know that the only reason that I'm here to ask those questions, that we have the only reason that we have museums with their bones and that there's likely a sentience that understands these concepts of deep time and extinction and evolution and contingency is because they disappeared. That you know there wasn't a way for us to, or our ancestors to coexist with them. And show up with us. I've seen plenty of sort of speculation about this, about whether humans are inevitable or not. I don't think we are in the least. I think if the non-avian dinosaurs were still around, it would still very much be the age of dinosaurs right now. There's no reason to believe that it wouldn't have continued. They made it through so much, so many previous mass extinctions and changes to climate and sea level and mountains going up and being eroded down, all these other things that really took a once in a 4.6 billion year event to shuffle them off the evolutionary stage. So it's something where I'm not sure that there's a good word as far as I know to express this feeling that it's a feeling of both loss and gratitude um, or this something that's so fundamentally bittersweet where like, I feel like I miss them and I wish that I could see them. But I know that they had to disappear in order for me to exist at all. Well, Riley, we're glad you exist. Thank you so much for being here and for filling our minds with prehistoric pasts. Well, thank you for existing with me. Thank you so much, V. This has been wonderful. If you'd like to learn more about Riley Black and her book, The Last Days of the Dinosaurs, An Asteroid, Extinction, and the Beginning of Our World, we've got your back on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. And hey, if this, if this is your first time here, welcome. We'd love it if you subscribed and you can get in-depth interviews with authors and scientists every episode. You can also follow us on our social media feeds and on our website. You can send us a note about what you love or hate about the show. We've also got a Patreon. And if you have, say, a coffee's worth of money to spare every month, it would help us to pay the amazing editors and producers who keep this show running with love and elbow grease. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes. And we thank you for it. 
The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. Thank you.